From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. Robin Hood is in the mission is just absolutely real. These guys, Beju Bot and Vlad Tenev, the founders, set out to open up the financial services markets to people that had been otherwise not served at all, you know, disregarded, underserved, overcharged, and who had no interest in it. That was Dan Gallagher. He's the chief legal officer of Robinhood, creator of an insanely popular stock trading app. We discussed the company's mission, how it is challenging the established orthodoxy on investing, and why it remains misunderstood by critics and in the media. We also discussed Dan's time in government. He held a senior post at the SEC during the global financial crisis and later served as Republican commissioner. He talks about his role in overseeing the investment banks, tells us where he was in 08 when the music stopped, provides unique perspective on the layman failure, and dispels common narratives about Wall Street greed as the root cause of the crisis. My co-host for today's episode is McCombs Business School student, Robert Keithley. Dan, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Professor. It's great to be here. Uh, let's also welcome uh, Robert Keithley. He's a McCombs Business School student. Uh, he's my co-host uh, for today's episode. Robert? Yeah, thank you, Scott. Also happy to be here. Uh, and Dan, there's a, a lot about financial markets that we want you to help us unpack today, uh, not least the rise in popularity of commission-free trading uh, through Robinhood. Uh, but before we do, we want to explore some of your previous high-profile roles in government and industry. Uh, you have uh, you were a law partner at Wilmer Hale. You were the chief legal officer of a large pharmaceutical company, Mylan. Uh, you were a senior official at the SEC during the global financial crisis. You were later a Republican commissioner of the SEC during the Obama administration. Uh, so you've done a lot. You have a lot of experience. Uh, we're hoping to learn a bit more about it. Um, and Robert, where do you think we should start? From the beginning. Um, Dan, what inspired you to become a lawyer? And what was your career path like from college to your first job? Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's a, it's a real honor to be uh, back at UT, if, if only virtually. Um, I, think it, I think UT, Scott, was my last trip before uh, the coronavirus shut down last year to, to come to campus and speak. You know, look, I'm the classic case of the English slash government major at a liberal arts college who didn't know what they were going to do, and law school seemed sort of natural. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, and I was at uh, Georgetown undergrad in the, in the liberal arts college. Um, and uh, I think, you know, my decision to go to law school kind of came late in my college career. I wasn't exactly sure how to, how or where to go, uh, how I would afford it. Um, and so I took a year off in between college and law school. And then uh, the debate was settled for me when uh, the idea of going to night law school uh, came up as I was working at a law firm, uh, sort of as a paralegal gopher, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, you know, at, in, in DC in the early 90s. If you'll remember, and I'll always try to tie things to economics because of our dear friend, uh, Professor Bogus here, uh, early 90s, when I was making these decisions, we were coming out of a pretty steep recession, nothing like what we saw uh, 08 uh, or even later in 2000 after the dot-com burst. But Back then, by historical norms, that was a pretty steep recession. So the idea of 
you know, going and paying $100,000 plus for law school and taking on debt and everything else was a pretty serious thing. So I, I made the decision to go to night law school, at which I did at Catholic University in DC. I worked at the law firm during the day. And, uh, you know, really, I just enjoyed uh, being in the law firm setting and it felt like this was something I could do. And uh, but I was working in the real estate law group at, at Ballard Spar, which is a Philadelphia law firm. And uh, that didn't feel right. I mean, that just, you know, it was fun. I liked the people, but I just wasn't all that intellectually interested uh, in it. And so uh, after my second year, actually, I think after my first year, I spent a summer at the SEC in the uh, summer honors program, which uh, used to be a really small group, uh, kind of like a summer associate program at a law firm and uh, was in the enforcement division there and loved it. Like, like just absolutely was enthralled with it. And the upside of it was that you got a, a interview at the end. It was the only way you could get into the SEC uh, directly from law school. And uh, that seemed great until they gave you your offer. And it was, I think, I think it was $37,000 a year back then, which Wow. With my rent and student loan debt, I would have had to take out loans to go work at the SEC. So I, wow. I couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Was that really competitive internship networking interview process? It actually was. It was actually, it was pretty um, an exciting moment in my career for me because I wasn't the best student at Georgetown. I was fine. Uh, I didn't have the best LSATs. They were fine, you know, and I, Catholics, certainly not the best law school, but it's a good one. And, you know, if you stay in the DC area, it, it's you know, a pretty decent school, but I did really, really well my first year and got into the program where it was mostly me and, and other kids from Ivy League schools or only about 20 or 25. So it was a really nice little validation there. And, um, you know, it was the beginning of uh, something special as they would say, if it uh, comes to the SEC, because I'd end up going back. So what I did was uh, the summer after that, I was a summer associate at uh, what was then called Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, which was a, I, I wouldn't say it's old school in the sense of a traditional DC law firm. It was started in the sixties by Lloyd Cutler and John Pickering. Um, Lloyd Cutler was Jimmy Carter's general counsel and then later Clinton's and sort of a quintessential DC law firm. Uh, they had a, a, back then they did. And I, I think they still do have the top securities law practice in the country from like an SEC practice. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went there and spent the summer, worked in the securities group and, and loved that and ended up uh, getting an offer from them and staying on there as a young lawyer. And I was there for about five or six years uh, as a young lawyer. So Dan, how, how did you, you, you became a political uh, figure, how did your pre your prior experience, you know, lead you to that? Did you, you know, tell us what your worldview of regulation is and how much of that came into your career versus was shaped or a product of your career path? It's, a, it's an awesome question because, um, you know, people see me so overtly, uh, you know, as a, I mean, you, you get attached to a party literally when you get picked to be an SEC commissioner. So I was, a, as you said, a Republican commissioner in a Democrat administration, uh, you know, a, a real believer in small government and uh, free markets. And, um, but it wasn't until later in life that I really kind of tapped into that emotion. I mean, I was uh, mostly concerned with, you know, getting a good job, paying off debts. You know, uh, I got married in, in 2000. So starting a family, all the basics and really wasn't all that interested in the political world. And, and part of it was I grew up in a 
traditional Irish Catholic Democrat Pennsylvania family, right? And and I think um, I wasn't ever really enthralled with that. And so it kind of made me apathetic uh, to uh, the political world. And then when I sort of tapped into my inner libertarian, I think is when I, um, you know, really uh, from a policy perspective and then, um, you know, later on the commission really just got uh, interested in, in the political side of things. Even though, you know, SEC commissioners, as you know, Scott, shouldn't be shouldn't be politicians, but you know, you, you do get drawn in based on your ideology. So but before you were a commissioner at the SEC, you were what we call a staffer at the SEC and you occupied uh, a couple of senior roles and during a really interesting time of financial markets, and I put interesting in parentheses, the global financial crisis. Uh, can you explain your role during that period? Uh, and in particular, uh, can you define uh, when it happened, the global financial crisis, at least in terms of, in terms of, you know, from the inside, your perspective? Sure, sure. So I'll take a step back just to kind of fill in the one gap. Um, you know, I, I left Wilmer after about five years because one of my clients in Philadelphia asked me to come be the general counsel. It was a brokerage firm called Fiserv Securities. And so at an early age, I went up there uh, in the middle of the market timing, late trading scandals of 2003, four. Uh, if you remember all those with Elliot Spitzer and everything else, uh, Fiserv was caught up in that. And I jumped right into the middle of a, of a roaring SEC investigation. We got that settled, the corporate parent and then sold us to Fidelity. And I ended up going back to Wilmer for a little stint. Uh, but then I heard that an SEC commissioner, Paul Atkins, was looking for a trading and markets and enforcement council. And that was really uh, my core competency. Uh, he had another counsel named Hester Purse, who's a sitting commissioner right now uh, at, at the SEC, who I had worked with at Wilmer Cutler. We'd, we'd become friends at Wilmer Cutler. She had left to go to the SEC. Uh, I reached out to her and we connected. And next thing you know, I was working for Commissioner Atkins. Um, I think he gave me the offer at the end of 05. I started very beginning of 06. And so was his counsel. For about a year and a half, then I was counsel to Chairman Chris Cox um, for a while, and then I was going to leave the agency in the summer of 08, right after uh, Bear, but before Lehman, and go back to Wilmer again. You know, I had a nice little stint as counsel uh, up on the tenth floor, as we call it, where the commission sits. And uh, there was a division director, Scott. I know you're familiar with Eric Siri who ran uh, the Division of Trading and Markets. He had formerly in the 90s been the chief economist uh, of the SEC. And he was looking for a new deputy director. And I was helping him with that search. Um, the candidate that we had identified turned out didn't want the job and uh, never applied. Uh, and uh, it was my first of a few Dick Cheney moments, as I call them, where I was helping somebody find a candidate and then the candidate turned out to be me. Uh, so Eric asked me to come be the deputy director of trading and markets. And I believe it was June, June, July of 2008. Was that the first time you'd worked for an economist as opposed to a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cause Chris Cox is a lawyer too. And as, as was Atkins, um, you know, obviously at the, at the brokerage firm, I, my CEO was a, an engineer by training. So that was a different experience for me, but, uh, but yeah, mostly all lawyers. And, um, but I took over the, the investment bank side of trading and markets. So the division of trading and markets at the SEC, for those who don't know, covers uh, both the markets. So you have the equity markets, options, uh, you have clearing houses, all covering uh, 
products that are regulated by the SEC. And then it also covers brokerage firms and transfer agents um, and things like that. So market intermediaries. And back, back in the day, they were called investment banks. You call them broker dealers now, but um, you know, there was a big rivalry between investment banks and commercial banks uh, after Graham Leach Bliley in 99. And the SEC had jurisdiction over the investment banks, the Fed and banking regulators had jurisdiction over the commercial banks. Uh, they started to merge together you know, after, after Graham Leach Bliley. So the SEC was sort of inserted into the world of bank regulation, even though the, the jurisdiction was really mostly over the broker dealer entity. Um, we called them CSEs at the SEC, Consolidated Supervised Entities. And we had a whole program uh, that we mirrored off the Fed supervisory program uh, to oversee those investment banks. They included Goldman and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch, Bayer, Lehman. Um, and it was full of economists, Scott, as you well know. Uh, I think there was, I don't even know if there was one lawyer in the team. It was all sort of PhD economists, uh, quantitative experts, insanely smart people, most of whom unfortunately we lost after the financial crisis who went to go work you know, in-house on the street or for the Fed or for OCC or other agencies. Um, that was a ton of fun. I supervised that group and I took over about six weeks before Lehman and uh, never looked back. It was uh, quite a wild ride. And I mean, to answer your question, I think um, in 2007 is when I believe obviously the financial crisis really started because we, we started to notice the dislocations and we had this group, you know, which became, you know, sort of uh, synonymous with SEC failure because of the narratives of the financial crisis. Uh, but the CSE group was actually this amazing window for the SEC into the markets that it never had before. And I remember Eric Seary coming up in 2007 when I was working for either Atkins or, or Cox and talking about the you know, mortgage dislocations um, and, and concerns about the mortgage markets. and looking at the balance sheet of all of the investment banks we oversaw and, and the massive amount of mortgage assets that they had. And um, it was pretty eye-opening at the time. And, you know, then we started to see dislocations in England that year. You know, folks always think it's 08, but really started to pick up steam uh, with Northern Rock and other uh, failures in Europe. And then, of course, with Bear Stearns in March of, uh, of 08. So where do you think the big... Um causes of the crisis were? And uh, I guess who was at fault there? Ooh, gosh, we, I don't know if we have enough time on that, but uh, you, look, there's a, yeah. a common narrative and it's actually codified in the Dodd-Frank legislation that arose out of the financial crisis that, you know, it was Wall Street greed uh, and regulatory failures were the sort of two primary drivers of the financial crisis. And and without a doubt, both of those things featured, right? That they were part of yeah. the financial crisis. I would call them either features or symptoms of the larger issue. To me, the larger issue was a massively failed federal housing policy that started um, in earnest. It, you know, it, it started a long time ago, but in the Clinton administration, it really picked up. And it was a bipartisan issue, not a Democrat-Republican thing. It was passed on from one administration to the other, this notion that, you know, we need to expand home ownership in the US and to do that, we need to pump money through Fannie, Freddie, you know, the, the GSEs as well as, um, you know, uh, 
we, we saw the rise of private mortgage uh, entities, you know, around the country. And it just, you know, with the implicit backing of, uh, of the U.S. Uh, government, you know, Fannie and Freddie were issuing their securities. People were assuming they would always be bailed out. Things just got completely uh, out of whack. There wasn't enough control or oversight of that. The banks, you know, to the Wall Street greed part of it, you know, as one uh, uh, Wall Street CEO said at the time, you know, they'll stop dancing when, you know, the music stops. Uh, the music stopped pretty abruptly, right? They, they took part in yeah. the party. They were originating uh, mortgages. They were buying mortgage originators. They were securitizing. They, but they ate their own cooking. Uh, they had this stuff sitting on their balance sheets, right? It wasn't just a, a scam, right? They weren't just cooking up toxic stuff and pushing it off onto unsuspecting folks. They were actually caught up in this idea too, that, you know, the party would never end. And so uh, failed federal housing policy to me is the number one reason. There are all sorts of other related, you know, monetary policy issues that arose after the dot-com burst, you know, 0% interest rates, you know, all sorts of related things that I think fed into the bubble. Um, But I think um, there's a great, great, great book for folks listening. Um, If you want a really good history of the financial crisis, the best one I've read, and I've read most of them, uh, there's a book by Bethany McLean and Joe Nocera called All the Devils Are Here. And if you follow Bethany, she's, she writes a lot in Vanity Fair and I mean, she's just brilliant, like otherworldly brilliant. Joe Nocera is an old, I think, New York Times reporter, you know, a very traditional journalist, does the work and, and, and does the research. And I think in the, in the most down the middle nonpartisan way, they factually put together uh, a history of the financial crisis that really gives a lot of credence to my belief, you know, um, uh, does does expose the Wall Street excess. There clearly were regulatory failures. I'm not trying to say there weren't, but but again, I think they were tangential to the main issues. So Dan, where were you when the music stopped? What did you do? And I, I have a, a little story that may be a myth. You can correct it if it is for everybody listening. But I was told that when the music stopped, um, you went around town and drained some cash machines because you were worried about the global economy. Is, is that true? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, that's a great story. So uh, I don't know at what point people deem the music to have stopped. I think most people say it's September 15th, right, when, when Lehman filed. Um, I was pulled up to New York that weekend. And folk, folks remember, and you can see one account of this in um, Too Big to Fail, that Andrew Ross Sorkin book. Uh, I wouldn't put a lot of credence in that book. I mean, um, it, it's mostly told from, I think, the perspective of two, two primary leakers that in the Treasury Department. So, uh, you know, and it was, it was done quickly. He was, you know, meant to get it out uh, before everyone else. And I mean, it's a great read. I just, you know, there's, there's definitely some shakiness in the, in the factual history. But um, there was a meeting, we called it the meeting of the seven families on Friday before the Lehman failure where uh, Paulson and, uh, and Geithner and Bernanke and Cox were to, you know, get all the CEOs together, beat them over the head and tell them they had to bail out Lehman effectively. And it didn't really work. Uh, Friday night, there were more meetings Saturday, I got a call from Eric Siri that Saturday, get your ass up here. Um, you know, it's not, it's not really going that well. And, um, so I, I had to hop on a train and go up. I brought one change of clothes uh, with me because I, I thought it was just an overnight trip. Um, and 
it, you know, what, what, what happened next was just pure chaos. I mean, we basically um, didn't sleep that Saturday, rolled into Sunday. Uh, we were convinced, I will tell you, and this is, there's moral hazard is a really interesting theory, right? That, um, you know, once you bail out somebody, there's a presumption in the market that future bailouts are coming. And so people's risk tolerance goes up beyond what it should um, in, in the private markets. And that certainly happened. There's no doubt it happened after Bear Stearns. I can tell you to me that the bailout of Bear Stearns was a massive policy failure. It, it caused moral hazard in the markets, but what it also did is it caused regulatory moral hazard. It caused the regulators like the SEC and others to assume, all right, well, you know, if Geithner's gonna bring out his fire hose, uh, you know, and, and Paulson agrees with that and Bernanke agrees with it. And if they did that for little Bear Stearns, you know, Lehman was twice or three times the size. Of course, they're going to bail out Lehman. And in the meantime, they had opened the PDCF, the primary dealer credit facility to Lehman. They had put Fed examiners in Lehman after Bear. So the notion that they wouldn't bail out Lehman was absurd. Um, and we thought the bailout would be very similar to Bear Stearns, that it would be uh, uh, basically um, Barclays uh, with the approval of the FSA at the time in, in England, uh, buying Lehman with some type of federal support. We didn't know what that would be yet. We, we assumed it would be like a maiden lane type structure like they did for, for Bear where they took these liquid assets off the balance sheet. Um, and they didn't. And uh, they didn't because the FSA said, you know, pound sand, we're not going to approve this sale. We don't want your bad assets on our registrant. And once Barclays fell away, there was really no other alternative except a full Fed bailout. And that didn't happen. So bankruptcy happened that night, like two in the morning, I think, uh, into Monday morning. Uh, the Asian markets, as you know, had already opened. So there was just chaos across the globe. Uh, CLS system, everything else was freezing up. Um, and we were trying, it felt like you were in one of those submarines or the submarine movies when the submarines raided to go like 300 meters below and we were about 450, you know, and the, the rivets were popping out and water was coming in and we were bailing and doing all that stuff. That's what it felt like. Um, and, the, and from the SEC perspective, you know, we brought our little kid toolkit into those discussions. I mean, the Fed at that point is really, um, you know, the Treasury, obviously, to a more limited extent, but the Fed is the one with a balance sheet, you know, that's able to actually take real action to, to stave off some of the harm. And, and so they were the leaders of that whole discussion. So I spent Saturday through Thursday morning uh, without, I probably had about two hours sleep that whole time um, uh, at Lehman Brothers, at the New York Fed. Uh, I think I was on the 30th floor of Lehman when it actually blew up or might've been sitting in the New York Fed. I can't remember exactly where. Um, but then I had to go back to the SEC. Of all things, our, um, this is great historical trivia for SEC nerds. Uh, our inspector general at the time had written a report on the failure of Bear Stearns. So he, he did a, a study of why our oversight of Bear Stearns failed and he wanted desperately to submit it to Congress before the end of the fiscal year and the fiscal year ends September 30 for the SEC and the government. Um, it was September, whatever, call it 18th. And he wanted to get it in and we couldn't get a reprieve. We were up there 
like I said, in our little submarine rivets everywhere, water up to our, our uh, eyeballs. And uh, he insisted on filing this report. So I had to come back as the manager of the program and write the management response uh, to, to that IG report, which was wholly faulty, um, was just, you know, it, it survives no rigor, you know, by way of auditing standards, uh, fairness, whatever you want to say. And, and we basically said that in our management report. If, uh, I think it, it should be still online. It'd be great trivia for folks to go up and find it. Mysteriously, when we filed it, only, only page one made it up uh, for months on the SEC website. There was some glitch, the IG said, uh, to why the rest of our document didn't make it up. So uh, go so figure. While, so while Lehman, Lehman was failing, you had to suspend your response to explain why Bear had failed. Yeah. So I, I took a train down Thursday morning, I think, uh, went right to the SEC, worked until I think two in the morning at the SEC. I still remember it like it was yesterday because it was about it was really hot. It was like 85 degrees and humid in DC. And Scott, you might remember the air conditioning goes off at seven. And so I was sitting in a temporary office. I still didn't have a permanent office as a deputy director. So this little temporary office revising and, and writing this management response, Eric Siri came into my office and uh, he's one of the more brilliant guys that you'll ever meet. He was literally a rocket scientist. Uh, PhD economist, Harvard Business School professor. Now he's at Babson. And he's just one of those guys that, you know, nothing really gets to him. He's, he's sort of unflappable. And he walks into my office, I think it was like nine o'clock at night. And, um, and he said, Oh, man, that was crazy. And I said, what? And he said, I just got back from Capitol Hill. I was there with Paulson and Chris and, and Bernanke and and, you know, we're begging for TARP money, this, this bailout money. We're begging for, you know, $800 billion or something. And, and he said, it was just wild because Bernanke said, this is the worst thing since the Great Depression and could be even worse. And I, I remember I literally, no joke, hadn't had sleep in, in days and days and, and looked at Eric and I was sweaty and just tired. And, and I said, Bernanke said that he said he said yeah I said was he on TV like is this like this the markets are gonna freeze like there's gonna be rioting in the streets tomorrow if he said this on TV and he said no 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 I don't I don't think there was a camera and so we hop online and immediately see Nancy Pelosi at a at a podium repeating that Bernanke just said this is the worst thing since the Great Depression so we're like I said Eric this is this is like end of day stuff like the markets might not open and you know and he's like ah i think it'll be okay and, and in typical eric fashion said you know the, the money markets are going to freeze that'll take like a you know a week and we can ungum that you know the equity market should be fine he just walked through why he wasn't so worried he's like but i did call jennifer that and his wife's name is jennifer and told her to take out as much cash as she could from the atms because because the money markets will freeze and if we need cash for something and and I, I got to tell you, that just like so hit me. I didn't tell this story till 10 years after the financial crisis because, uh, but now we can laugh about it uh, in a way. Um, but I thought it was a little too uh, scary for people to hear how scared we were. Uh, and I still remember my wife went to Harvard Law School. She was at her Harvard Law School reunion and I called her and she was at a bar and it was super loud. And I said, uh, 
go outside, please. And she went outside. I said, we had two separate not bank accounts that, you know, not, not in different names. We both had joint control, but she had a bank card for one of them. And I had a bank card for the other. I said, go take as much cash as we're allowed to take out. I don't even know what that limit is, but go, go take out. And she goes, oh my God, why? And I said, Steph, just go take out the cash, please. I can't, I can't tell you. And her, the funniest thing she still remembers is she was with her uh, uh, law school roommate, Colette. And she said, can I tell Colette? And I said, no. And then I hung up the phone, <laughs> which we, we have a much more cordial and, and loving relationship than that. I think she knew that uh, I was under crazy stress. So she did. And, and then on my way home, I think I took like a 2, 2 a.m. train home that night or whatever that last Amtrak train was. And uh, I stopped and took out as much money as I could, too. And the funny part was so between the two of us, we had like $2,000. I, I thought like a limit at the ATM was about $200. It's, it's way more than that these days. And so we had like two grand in cash sitting in a safe in our basement that we would use for babysitters for, for like the next year or two, um, all inspired by Eric Siri. And it was only because Eric Siri is the coolest cat I've ever met. And if, if he went and took out cash, then God damn it, uh, you know, something was really going to happen. So good thing he didn't go on TV. Right. Exactly. So the rumors were true. Um, it's true. What were your big, what were your big takeaways from that whole experience and what'd you learn from it? Uh, you know, so many things, I think, um, one, one thing you learned as a capital markets regulator at the SEC is, you know, in a time like that, unless you have a balance sheet, you're really a bit player. I mean, there's, there's only so much you can do the SEC's job, which I think is the right one, uh, is to ensure that you're not taking undue risks as a, a market participant, whether a brokerage firm, an investment advisor, a mutual fund. Uh, that you're disclosing things properly. And then if you take excessive risk and you blow up, we make sure that we can wind you down. And, and I think that's from a free market perspective, the way things should be. And that's the toolkit we brought to a party where, you know, on the Fed side, that's not what they do, right? They ensure safety and soundness and they ensure that the institution can carry on. And that's why they get pulled into all of these activities around keeping the entity going. And we come at it Let's just wind them down and make sure investors don't get harmed. Um, and so that conflict of regulatory views came into sharp contrast um, because the Fed had the balance sheet. You know, I think uh, they're viewed as the victor uh, in so many ways. They, they took their lumps, you know, giving bonuses to AIG executives and things like that. They certainly took some lumps. I, I don't mean to say they had an easy path, but you know, the way Dodd-Frank was written, the way these books are written about the financial crisis, the SEC is certainly painted as a major loser, uh, the Fed and Treasury a winner. You know, I think that, again, kind of goes to your own ideology. You know, if you're a really free market person, you would say, no, the, the whole country lost here because now we've instituted bailouts. Um, and, uh, you know, that was on display obviously last March, again, you know, with, with COVID, totally different circumstances and, and maybe uh, from a principled philosophical perspective doesn't present the same uh, moral hazard, but still all those same tools uh, were unleashed in, into the markets. And so that it ensures that the Fed will be entrenched for years uh, in our markets. So Dan, you had a, a wonderful government career and then you left, you returned to the private sector some years ago and you have started this pattern. Uh, you get elected to a corporate board and then you become the company's chief legal officer. First with yeah. Mylan, 
uh, and now with Robinhood. Uh, is that backwards? Can you, can you explain how this it happened? It is backwards. Uh, you, yeah, and you, you're the first one that noticed the pattern. I didn't even really think about it until I saw that it, you had that question. Um, yeah, so I met the Milan folks when I was a commissioner. They were very interested in corporate governance issues and pretty passionate about it and outspoken, which is, as you know, Scott, pretty rare for a public company to be outspoken in a, in a singular way on governance issues. So really admired them. Um, loved the, the CEO, the chairman who was the former CEO. And, and when I left, um, they asked me to join the board and I went through a process uh, of uh, you know, getting ready to join that board. They hadn't voted on me yet. And after the election uh, in 16, I was at a place uh, in 2016 called Potomac Global Partners. Is Paul Atkins, my old boss, and another former commissioner started it. Um, and we had uh, done the financial services transition work for the Trump campaign. So when Trump actually won and shocked everybody, there was a lot of speculation about me, about Paul, about others in our shop going back into government. I knew I wasn't. Um, I had to go make some money. Uh, I got two kids in private school and uh, SEC commissioners. I made, uh, I made two thirds as much as an SEC commissioner as I made as deputy director of trading and markets. So uh, that'll tell you something. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we didn't know which way the shop was going to go. And at the same time, my old law firm came back and asked me to rejoin to be part of the management uh, and, and succession plan in the securities group at Wilmer. So I agreed to do that. And then the Wilmer folks called me after saying I could join the Milan board. They didn't realize they had a conflict and I couldn't join it. So I called the chairman. He was wonderful about it, very disappointed. It was a few weeks before the vote. Uh, but then I got a call from their board meeting and they had a succession planning uh, meeting of their NomGov committee. And uh, they, they decided they wanted me to come as their chief legal officer instead of their uh, uh, board member. And, you know, I told them I know nothing about pharma and I uh, am not moving to Pittsburgh because they're based outside of Pittsburgh. And their response was, we know pharma, uh, we need you for other things and um, you can work out of DC. So the rest is history. I agreed to do it for a few years. Uh, they had had the EpiPen uh, incident in 2016, you know, that required sort of a rethinking of their DC focus, a lot of uh, litigation and regulatory, um, uh, you know, enforcement after that, that we dealt with and uh, governance issues, you know, corporate governance and things like that. And so it was a great, great ride. Um, I learned a lot, you know, to be a chief legal officer of an S&P 500 company and uh, love the team there. But, I, you know, my real desire was to get back to financial services. So you, you went back to Wilmer for a fourth time. And uh, that, that somehow led you back, led, led you to Robinhood. Explain that. Yeah. So another former SEC commissioner, Joe Grunfest, uh, had been a friend. He's out at Stanford Law School, for those who don't know. Um, he's sort of the, the dean of the fintech bar in Silicon Valley, I would say, and if not the technology bar more generally. Uh, he had met the founders of Robinhood early on and sort of uh, been, a, a, if not more, a spiritual advisor to them. And um, as they started to really feel the pressure of uh, Washington, uh, he was telling them, you need to meet this guy, Dan Gallagher. He's, he's got a broker dealer, you know, investment bank background. Um, and I finally, uh, at the end of my mile instant, was introduced to the founders of Robinhood and um, immediately just loved both of them, uh, found them to be very different uh, than I'd 
they had been portrayed in some ways and at least in Washington circles, you know, um, and just brilliant and really nice people, family people, uh, really disrupting, I think, uh, the brokerage industry in a very positive way for investors. Um, and it got me very excited talking to them and those conversations continued. Um, and I, and I left Milan, I was set to return and, uh, be deputy chair of the Wilmer Securities Group. I actually should have taken over as chairman last week. That was the, the arrangement. Um, and Robin Hood asked me to join the board at, you know, right before I came back to Wilmer and Wilmer allowed me to do that. So I became a board member uh, back in October of 19. And then um, in, uh, in the spring, my predecessor decided to leave. Uh, Ann Hoagie, who's a wonderful person. She had some things going on personally and she, she needed to, to leave. And so this was my second Dick Cheney moment where I spent a lot of time with the founders trying to find a replacement. And then they asked me to come do this job. So I, as you alluded to before, you were a guest lecturer in my policy class in the fall. And I remember when I announced the class that you were coming, um, I could have been inviting Bob Dylan or Elon Musk, um, the reaction to the class that somebody from Robin Hood, the general counsel or chief legal officer was gonna talk to them. So you had, I mean, you were a rock star. Uh, and I was really astounded because at the time, my knowledge of Robin Hood was mostly through the press, which doesn't necessarily have the same view um, as many um, Robin Hood customers. And so that was, uh, that was pretty remarkable. And that was my first introduction to a different view of the company. Um, and so uh, there's a lot that we wanna unpack here right now. And I'll maybe just turn to Robert and say, and, he, and by the way, he's a huge fan, I think, you can tell us differently of Robin Hood and wh where do you think we should take the questions? Yeah, I definitely am. Um, I think we should start with the name. Uh, so why Robin Hood? Well, you know, obviously I, I joined about nine months ago, uh, coming up on 10 months ago. So I wasn't there at the time, but it's directly tied um, uh, the name Robin Hood to the mission of the company. The mission is to democratize finance uh, for all. And I got to tell you guys, like you'll, especially as business students or, you know, law students, whoever is listening, you know, you'll, you'll encounter companies, private public companies at, at some stage in your career, you'll work for them, you'll work with them. Almost everyone has a mission. And, you know, one thing you should challenge is whether the mission's for real or not, because there are just a lot of catchy slogans for companies who really are just all about squeezing that last penny, um, you know, out of their business model. And they put a catchy slogan up to make, you know, make it sound like it's more than that. Robinhood is, and the mission is just absolutely real. Um, the, these guys, Beju Bot and Vlad Tenev, the founders, set out to open up the financial services markets to people that had been otherwise not served at all, you know, disregarded, underserved, overcharged, um, and who had no interest in it. You know, presented with uh, a means to entry into the financial markets that was clunky, you know, that was not intuitive and. They just said, you know what? We think we can tap into something new here. We can open up and democratize these markets, and and they have. So, so the Robinhood name is really synonymous with that mission. Yeah. Now, now, did you did you ever read your children Robinhood growing up, um, the the fairy tale? I don't think I um, did. Yeah, it, it's banned in my household because I tell my kids it's not okay to rob from the rich, even if it's to give to the poor. But that's not the intent of the Robinhood name here. 
It is not at all the intent of the name. Uh, it's it's to grow the pie bigger for everybody. Yeah, Robert. Well, is that what you meant when you said you met the founders? Could you see like that their mission was real? Yeah, I mean, I, like I had really limited bandwidth to to take on any additional roles, you know, including a new board role. But you know, and I think Scott probably encountered this uh, at his time at the SEC. Also, I mean, I was out there all the time, and it was not a partisan issue. Democrat commissioners uh, were out there a lot, bemoaning the lack of retail participation in the U.S. equity markets, in particular. And what we saw was a pretty rapid decline from the late '70s. Um, you know, where I don't I don't know the exact numbers, and Scott will test me on this, but let's just say it was. 75% retail participation, right? So 75% of US citizens were somehow involved in the US capital markets in, in the late 70s. It, it dwindled down to uh, you know the 50% mark or so. And for a lot of reasons, folks just weren't investing. Um, the, the rise of passive investments, you know, where you just buy your S&P 500 fund, set it and forget it, that sort of thing, uh, really has caused folks to not directly invest in the companies you know that are held by those passive funds not to really make that directional investment decision not to be involved in the life of that company not to vote your proxy things like that um, and i just viewed that as a hallmark of the u.s capital markets it would set it's what sets us apart from so many other wholesale markets where everything's intermediated for retail where there's just really not uh, uh retail interest uh and i think look Having retail interest in companies and therefore the, um, you know, uh, the economy is a really good thing for citizens, right? It's a good thing for financial literacy. It's a good thing for engagement, understanding of how the economy works. So, so, so um, why is Robinhood so popular? What, what, what about the business model is making it successful? What did incumbents miss and yeah. how will this model endure? It's pretty easy. I mean, what they, and not, not easy. I don't want to take away from what, what Beiju and Vlad and the original team did, but I mean, the, the idea is simple, right? They were the first brokerage firm to start on an app, right? It's app and mobile first. It wasn't some website, you know, clunky website that they came up with and then translated into a clunky app, which is pretty much everyone else. Um, it was app first. It was commission free. Uh, meaningfully, it was no account minimums. We don't talk about that as much because, you know, account minimums come and go and they vary amongst firms, but they're a real barrier to entry for small investors, right? If you have a $500 account minimum, much less 5,000, which you might find at some other brokerage firms, you're not going to enter, right? And so you take no account minimums, no commissions for trading, which, which Robinhood really pioneered, uh, you make this thing and you put it on an app, you're tapping into a world that otherwise isn't that interested, you know, and doesn't, you know, does it doesn't feel sold by the notion of participating, um, you know, in the brokerage community. And so it's just taken off like wildfire. They built something that our customers want to use, that they like to use, that's intuitive, that works uh, in a way that they're, they're used to, right? That, that other apps that they use uh, also work. And so it's tapped into this whole new demographic. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of the, our customers might've otherwise been going to other brokerage firms, but I think we firmly believe we've, we've opened the markets to um, a huge number of, of our customers that otherwise wouldn't be in these markets. 
So I'm not yeah. smart enough to actually invest in markets. And I don't own any stocks except through broad-based indices. But my co-guest here does. Robert is a Robinhood user. And can I ask you, Robert, uh, what do you think makes Robinhood so appealing? Is Dan right? Or is there anything else? I mean, I think what he said is exactly why I joined. Um, I was, my cousins were using it. My friends were. And then one day, one day I was looking at my cousin's phone and he had the Robinhood app. Um, like Dan said, open, I asked what that was and he explained it to me and he showed me, you know, his portfolio and it just picked that off for me. And, um, you know, also with the account minimums, I had a small amount of money to invest. So I pretty much was forced into Robinhood for that one reason alone. But then on top of that, also no commissions and um, it being an app, I could just download the app, takes two seconds, it's on my phone. Um, so that was really it for me. Yeah. And now you're a business student at University of Texas. And one day you're going to mm-hmm. have a high paying job and you're going to be a Robin Hood customer. And Dan's going to say, that's yes. why we did it. Yeah. Yes. And look, you know, so first of all, great to hear. I'm glad you're, you sound like a happy customer and that's terrific. That's what we want. Um, and, you know, but, but we get it too, um, Robert, like, you know, having a customer like you, right. Who, who until recently was new to the industry comes for us with a lot of responsibility, right? We, we need to make sure that you're, treated fairly, that there's uh, proper disclosures made to you about things, uh, you know, the, the, the way we receive revenue, the way, uh, you know, uh, material things about the companies you're investing in, right, that you have access to those disclosure documents and, and the like educational materials, which, you know, for us is just hugely important, um, you, you know, that we have a really vibrant uh, source of educational materials for our customers and and not just like you, you guys have seen them right go into a more traditional firm go on their website go to the education library or whatever and they're going to link you to a 10q on edgar right and you're supposed to go read 300 pages and that's not good enough for us we know that our customers don't want to learn that way we, we know that it's really hard for anyone to learn that way because it's just so much language, you know, so many words in, in required mandated SEC disclosures. And that's a whole separate discussion. Um, so we're, we're trying to educate folks in the way that, you know, is, is most efficient uh, for them. And so uh, we, have the, we have a learn page, uh, which is basically our education page, you know, in the app and, you know, up on the website. Um, and I think you know, there was some crazy statistic. We had 3.2 million people read our learn articles in 2020, and which was a 260% increase from last year. So the activity uh, on our educational pages was huge uh, in 2020. We have the Robin Hood snacks, Robert. I don't know if you listen to the snacks podcast or see the newsletter. Uh, yeah, we have- I do the newsletter. I read the newsletter almost every day, but not the podcast which is, it's just pretty cool. Right. And it's just talking about current events, but it's really educating uh, folks as to how the markets work. And we have, I think 2 million monthly active podcast listeners and then 20 million subscribers to the, to the newsletter. And then we, you know, we give you free access to all the financial, uh, you know, news networks, CNBC, Barron's, all that. Um, And we're, and you know what though, we're not either, we're certainly not happy with where we are. We're going to keep pushing, investing on, on education will never be done. It's just an evergreen obligation that we have to our customers to get better at it, to provide new resources and tools. And, and to me, that's the challenge because we want Robert to stay with us. We want to be with him 
Scott, to your point, as he, he goes, he, he gets married, he has a job, he has kids or he doesn't, you know, he, he all of a sudden he needs a 529 plan instead of just a regular brokerage account. Like we want to be able to be in a position to provide the products and the education that our customers need as they, as they mature. So, uh, and then, you know, obviously continue to drive new growth um, by younger, uh, you know, getting in younger and newer investors onto the platform. So yeah. there's a, there's a fair number of critics out there. I mean, everything you just said uh, sounds great. Um, one of, one of the critics or I think he's a critic, or at least according to how he's written, somebody we know in common, Jason Zweig, recently wrote an article about when the stock market is too much fun and there's discussion of gamifying uh, investing. Uh, can you tell us about these criticisms? Are the critics right? Are they wrong? I mean, what is your response to that? You know, I think we're at this sort of inflection point, Scott, where sort of the, the old world is meeting the new. Um, and Jason's a brilliant guy. We obviously, I sat next to him um, you know, on your, your panel at UT, uh, and I respect him tremendously. And, and I think, you know, I think his wasn't all criticism. I think there was some um, uh, appreciation uh, expressed by him for Robin Hood. I know, you know, he's very keen on having uh, retail participation in the markets. And so, uh, but we pay attention to these things, obviously. And, uh, you know, if someone like him is, is raising issues, we take it seriously. But the gamification idea to me, again, is this inflection point of there's the old guard, right? That's an in, in entrenched old guard that likes things the way they are and the way they were, and they love these barriers to entry, and they like the old rule book, and they like you know their relationships with policymakers, and they don't want a lot to change. And when something like Robinhood comes along and presents such a radical change from the norm, right, where it's it's easy and intuitive to invest, right? Where it's right at your fingertips, where it's app first, that's a challenge to the established orthodoxy and that, you know, disturbs some people. Is it gamification? It's not. It's just simply that we've created a platform that people like to use and they, they find easy to use, they find intuitive. And I think in some ways it's a lack of understanding by the old guard of what this new generation of investors really wants. And so let's just call it gamification and, and make it sound sinister. I, I just, I, as you can tell, don't subscribe to that. Um, I, think that I think that the markets have evolved. I think that, um, you know, I think the rest of the industry and I think policymakers need to evolve with it. So Robert, do you think that the old guard has got it wrong? Uh, do they understand your level of sophistication? Do you need uh, protection? Uh, I don't think, you know, I wouldn't be able to trade higher level things like options, you know, on Robinhood. I would definitely need clearance to do that. But I think for the things that I'm doing, um, you know, I do have, I'm sophisticated enough to do that. So. Hey, so Dan, let's move to uh, uh, another topic of criticism or at least a civil settlement that Robinhood uh, recently engaged with the SEC for $65 million, uh, a penalty paid. What, uh, can you explain that? What happened? Uh, are you guilty of something? Uh, well, as, as you well know, as, as a SEC alum, we, we neither admit nor deny anything in that SEC order. Um, and so, you know, one thing I can tell you is that, you know, the, the facts associated with that order relate to old historical uh, issues at, at Robinhood that are, you know, well behind us in my view. So, um, you know, it's always hard when you have a... Um, 
uh, settlement with one of your, you know, your prime regulator like that and when they find issues. And so we're happy that it's resolved. We take it in incredibly seriously and, and don't want obviously ever anything like that to recur. The Robin Hood of today, Scott, is so different than the Robin Hood uh, during the time frame represented by that order. I mean, you know, starting I think with me uh, coming on board, uh, we've we've just massively restructured and rebuilt uh, and resupplied the legal department. You know, I've, I've brought in a number of, of really seasoned people, both on the regulatory side as well as the industry side. So the whole of the legal department senior management is brand new. Uh, we've grown in size. We've we've added, like I said, new skill sets to legal. The, I mean, the, the existing lawyers at Robinhood were brilliant um, and did some amazing things over the years to get Robinhood where it is. And this is just a recognition that we're, you know, we're big, uh, we're on the radar screen and, and we're building that out. On the compliance side, we've done the same exact thing. We brought two senior, senior industry vets in to be the CCOs of each of our brokerage firms. So we have a, an introducing firm where you have the client relationship and then a clearing firm that handles and settles the, the, the trades and the assets. So um, we've added across the board, like it is so incredible what we've already done since I've been here uh, to in, improve our control environment that again, it's, it's like uh, that, that SEC settlement does not reflect who we are today. Is this, is this just a case of a FinTech disruptor changing the way things are done? And then as they grow up and fits into the legal environment, the pre-existing structure, it's just a, a meeting of the middle and bringing somebody like you in helps uh, shape the corners to make sure that the compliance uh, the company grows into standard compliance? You know, I got to tell you, this is, again, one of the reasons I really just became, you know, enthralled with the, the founders, Lod and Beju. When they asked me to come do my job, they had a, it wasn't just, let's plug Dan Gallagher in and hope things go away. It was part of a larger vision for legal compliance and the other control functions in the company where they just wanted to really enhance everything as part of a holistic uh, review of things in 2020. And uh, that's what really sold me. It wasn't just, hey, let's, let's bring Dan in and hope things go away. And they've, they're fully bought in to having the best talent around, you know, the highest standards for compliance. Uh, we've been working like crazy, you know, to get Robin Hood there. There's always more work to do and we take it really seriously, you know, our responsibility to be compliant, but, you know, also our, our responsibility to customers. So um, it's, it's, I got to tell you, it's the funnest job I've ever had. I, I love it. It's all part of the founder's vision. Um, and so it's, it's just a recognition of where Robin Hood stands right now. To your first comments, like you didn't know about Robin Hood. And next thing you know, you find out that we have 13 million plus accounts and, you know, we, we, we've really, we're on the, you know, unfortunately in the press, uh, all the time, you know, lots of times for good um, reasons. And so, um, you know, it's just, uh, I think it was a, a great move by them. So we're running out of time with you and we really appreciate you being here and we probably didn't cover nearly as much as we uh, wanted to. Uh, but I do wanna uh, talk about COVID for just a second before we leave. It is something that's affecting all of our lives. And I just wanna know uh, personally and professionally and for Robinhood, uh, how has that affected uh, your environment and your worldview? You know, I, it's been an amazing experiment for me. I joined Robinhood remotely. Uh, I had the luxury, obviously, of knowing the team from my board uh, spot 
you know, and I'd, I'd had a, a couple meetings with them personally in that context. So I got to know the C-suite pretty well uh, in that regard. But, you know, I joined remotely. I wondered how it was going to work. I didn't know most of the folks in legal. I've hired a whole bunch of people who have now uh, joined remotely. It's working. You know, we're still fully remote, you know, and, and um, I, we'll see how long that's going to last, uh, you know, through this year. Um, but, uh, you know, I think lawyers luckily are able to pull off their jobs remotely, probably yeah, easier than some other professions. And, um, you know, but I think the engineers are getting it done and, and all of the various uh, aspects of our organization are, are really pulling together. And I mean, the, the company has just grown by leaps and bounds even since I started. So, you know, I think we're the majority of Robinhood right now probably started since COVID and doesn't know life in an office uh, and it's still working really well, which is great. And has COVID accelerated the business model, hindered it, uh, unaffected it? You know, there's there's discussion about whether, you know, folks sitting at home, you know, uh, open accounts because of it. I, there has to be some of that. Scott, I don't, I don't know how you quantify exactly what that is. Um, but, uh, you know, what we're finding, though, is that the majority of our customers are buy and hold investors, right? So this notion of people just sitting around day trading, I think, is misplaced based on what we're seeing is, you know, folks are getting in and buying. They're, they, you know, instead of buying an expensive pair of shoes, they're buying a fractional slice of uh, Apple, you know, and um, that's awesome. <laughs> just like that to me, you know, for my old policy seat just feels so good. I'm kind of one of those just buy and hold investors. I've had AMD for like this whole year and it's grown exponentially and I haven't done much trading. And I agree with you. I think people think that um, a lot of young retail investors are going on Robinhood and day trading and inexperienced day trading. But I think people are just putting their money in Robinhood and as a almost savings savings account, but also something that is investing and something they can track. So, Which is just... Awesome, right? Because now you're, you're you have a relationship with that company, right? You'll you'll be able to vote your shares uh, this spring, you know, through your proxy, and you'll be tracking it, and you'll be looking at larger market developments because you have that ownership, you know. And if you hadn't, maybe you wouldn't be looking every day, and you know, checking in on the stuff. I think it really is having an impact uh, on our customers and their awareness of uh, financial issues generally. Well, Dan, we really thank you for being on the episode today. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Hopefully we can get you back at some point in the future. Uh, but thank you for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure, guys. Really thank you. Time. Yeah, thanks for having me. We hope that you enjoyed our first episode. If you did, then stay tuned for more. We have a great lineup of future guests. Each will help us explore the inner workings of financial markets and regulation. Our aim is to make the issues both interesting and understandable. The production is brought to you by the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our student executive producers from the Moody School of Communication are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr. My co-host for this episode is Robert Keithley, who also assisted me with background research. You will be introduced to more students as the season moves on. Finally, I'd like to dedicate this first episode to a former colleague of mine. When I left government to help start a policy center here at UT, she planted the seed of hosting a podcast. As a talented security markets attorney, she lamented that it was often hard to find easy to understand explanations of financial markets. She suggested that I do something about that. Well, Claire O'Sullivan, thanks for the idea, and I hope you become a listener.